0: Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I have been assigned two glorious verses, but I want to read the immediate context. Alistair Begg preached this morning from the subsequent passage to the one that I've been given. I am to look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I want to begin reading in verse 14, though. Uh, Alistair reminded us this morning that Paul is not telling Timothy something about the Bible that Timothy doesn't already know. Timothy knows and believes what Paul is telling him about the Bible here. And so you need to ask yourself, why is Paul telling Timothy this? And the answer is, I think, at least twofold. First of all, he is encouraging Timothy and reminding him of a truth that is absolutely vital for a minister to be able to go on expounding scripture, Lord's day after Lord's day, year after year, faithfully trusting God to do his work through the word. Timothy needs to be reminded of that. He's a young man starting out in his ministry. He is not where Paul is. Paul's almost at the finish line. He can, Paul can see the finish line from where he's standing. Timothy is just starting out. He needs to be reminded of what the Word of God is. He needs to be encouraged in that. Secondly, Timothy needs to understand how this truth applies to both his life and ministry. And you will notice that in the context, in verses 14 and 15, Paul pre-applies the truth about the Bible that he expounds in verses 16 and 17 to Timothy's life. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and following, he applies it to his preaching. So he applies this truth to his life and to his ministry, specifically. And so this is why Paul is expounding something to Timothy that Timothy, Timothy already knows about and believes Now, why do I say that to you tonight? Well, here I am in a room full of shepherds. And as Alistair said this morning, it is unlikely that any higher critics snuck into the room this week. I mean, if if I'm looking for the 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, I'm coming to this room. So why would I preach about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? And why would John assign me to preach about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 to you? Because brothers, you need to be encouraged. And you need to be reminded of this truth again. Because the world that you inhabit is not helping you believe the truth of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The air that you breathe is toxic. Everywhere you turn, there are assaults on the integrity, authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture, both in its theology and in its ethics. This world is not helping you believe these things, and you need to be encouraged from God's Word, about God's Word, for your life and for your ministry. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to give you a word of encouragement. It's my privilege to serve an institution that is dedicated to preparing pastors and church planters and missionaries for the work of the gospel for the rest of their lives. And so every year we are sending people out hundreds at a time into the service of God's people in the work of evangelism and discipleship. And what do they have to face this challenge with but the Word of God? And so it's my responsibility, my first responsibility as a chancellor of a seminary to wake up in the morning and believe this. Because the world is not helping my students believe this. The world's not going to help them when they're out pastoring or serving on the mission field or doing evangelism or discipleship or campus ministry believe this. And we've got to, as a faculty, make sure that we pour everything we can into these brothers so that they stand fast on the Word of God. Reformed Theological Seminary was actually started 50 years ago for this very purpose. The elders of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson offered uh, to endow a chair of theology at a major Presbyterian seminary if they would put a man in that chair who believed in inerrancy. The president of that institution scoffed at my elders and said that his institution would not be bought by a bunch of fundamentalists. They said, that's fine. We'll put the money in the bank. If you change your mind, give us a call. Four years later, that money started Reformed Theological Seminary that was committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, to the doctrines of grace, and the Great Commission. We were founded on biblical inerrancy, and so it is a particular joy for me to be at this particular gathering of faithful brothers. Now, as this world, with its toxic unbelief, assaults your soul, that happens in a couple of ways. One way is for you to lose confidence in the Word of God. And I've seen that happen to friends over the years where they've lost confidence in the Word of God. Chances are that that is a less likely strategy of Satan against the brethren collected at this conference than another strategy that is more insidious. Because there are at least two ways that he gets at us on this. There is not only the creating of a loss of confidence in the Word of God, but from another direction there is a loss of delight in the God of the Word. And I think I've seen more brothers from conservative Bible-believing backgrounds fall away from a belief in a high view of scripture because of that latter thing than the former thing. See, if you stop believing that the promises that God has in his word are the greatest things in this world, if you start believing that there's something out there better than the God of this word and better than the promises that he makes to you, then you're just one step away from walking away from this word. And it's interesting that Paul addresses that very point in this passage. So I'd like you to open your Bibles and look with me at 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Let me just briefly outline the whole of that passage for you, and then we'll read it. And I'll concentrate, especially on verses 16 and 17, taking in one little phrase from the end of verse 15 as well. Let's just walk through it. In verse 14... But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Paul tells Timothy, and there are basically seven parts to this outline, if you want to rifle through it quickly, don't stop believing. Keep on believing, Timothy. What you've been grounded in is true and right and good. Don't stop believing it. That's verse 14. Then the end of verse 14, knowing from whom you learned it. In other words, he says to Timothy, Timothy, remember who taught you the scriptures, You learn them on your mother and your grandmother's knee. At the Together for the Gospel conference this last time, uh, Mark Dever allowed me to have a panel on biblical inerrancy. And I asked John Piper, John, why do you believe in biblical inerrancy? Now, this is a man with a doctoral degree from the University of Munich who's studied New Testament at the highest level. And John immediately answered, because my mama told me to. And that's a good answer. That's a good answer. And Paul's saying, remember, you learned this from your mama and your grandma. Remember who taught you this. So he's reminding him that people who cared about his soul taught him to believe the word of God. Third, look at verse 15. From your childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, what's Paul talking about there? Timothy's Hebrew Bible. The New Testament didn't exist when uh, Timothy was growing up. He's just getting 2 Timothy now. (laughs) (laughs) So he's talking about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Paul will say, you've known that. And by the way, do you notice at the end of that phrase, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, you have, in two words, a description of the Bible's view of the Bible. Sacred writings. Now, there's a biblical argument for the inerrancy of Scripture. It's the sacred writings. It's, well, it's on the outside cover of most of your Bibles. It says, holy Bible. I give you an argument for the inerrancy of Scripture right there from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Then fourth, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's Paul saying that Timothy's Hebrew Bible teaches him the way of salvation, which is through Jesus Christ. That is, Timothy's Hebrew Bible preaches salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen fifth verse 16 all scripture is breathed out by god there paul is telling you what scripture is end of verse 16 and profitable for teaching for reproof correction and training in righteousness that's what it's for verse 17 that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work that's what it does now that's not my outline tonight you're not gonna have to suffer through seven points I'll tell you my outline in a minute. But that is the outline of the passage. Let's pray and then let's read God's word. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your word is truth. Sanctify us with your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. Hear it beginning in 2 Timothy three fourteen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. The Apostle Paul reminds Timothy what the Bible is, what it's for, and what it does in this context because he is exhorting him to live by the book and minister by the book. And just as the Psalms never tell us to praise God without telling us why we ought to do that, unlike many things that Christians sing today, the psalmist always tells us why we ought to praise God. He doesn't just exhort us to praise God. He tells us why. So also Paul doesn't just say to Timothy, live by the book, preach the book minister by the book he tells timothy why that's what paul is up to in this passage if you look at the passage four things will immediately jump out at you he says to timothy remember who you learned it from those godly women your grandmother and your mother they knew the lord they love the Word. They taught you to believe that Word. They cared about your soul, your eternal soul, and they taught you to believe this Word. Don't you ever lose the picture of their faces from your mind's memory when you think about the Word of God. Second, he points to what the Bible is as a means of encouraging him to live it and preach it it is the god-breathed word all of it he tells him what it's for it's for reproof and correction for training in righteousness it's for teaching and then if you peek into chapter four, he even says, remember who witnessed your ordination. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's, that's the crowd that's looking on Timothy. That's the audience that surrounds you as you minister the Word, as you were called in to ministry. God and Christ, the eyes of heaven are upon you. And one day you'll give an account. For all those reasons, Timothy, you live by the book and you minister by the book. Now that is very important for us to hear because we live in a world where for over 200 years... The primary assault on the Word of God has come from people who call themselves Christians. You perhaps saw it in the news, but just a few years ago, the vice moderator of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, I hasten to add, not my denomination, (laughs) announced that Scripture is only a reference point to the Word of God. It is not the Word of God with a capital W. And he went on to say in his talk, Sola Scriptura is dead. B.B. Warfield, 125 years ago, and you'll find these words in that wonderful volume that has been produced uh, for this occasion, this republication of his inspiration, authority of scripture. And by the way, that is a book that has stood the test of time. I had a professor who once said to me, B.B. Warfield outread, outthought, and outwrote every man of his generation. And I think he was right. And that is surely one of his greatest works. B.B. Warfield said, wherever five advanced thinkers assemble, at least six theories as to inspiration are likely to be ventilated. They differ in every conceivable point or in every conceivable point save one. They agree that inspiration is less pervasive and less determinative than has heretofore been thought or that is still thought in less enlightened circles. They agree that there is less of the truth of God and more of the error of man in the Bible than Christians have been wont to believe. They agree accordingly that the teaching of the Bible may be in this, that, or the other, here, there, or elsewhere, safely neglected or openly repudiated. And that is why it's so important for us to come to this passage tonight and hear what Paul says about the Bible. You know, in the end, all of us are going to have to decide whether we stand with Paul or with our contemporaries, with Moses or our contemporaries, and ultimately with Jesus Or our contemporaries. And the amazing thing about this passage tonight is you're going to see that what Paul is saying here, he has just gotten from Jesus. He's not telling you anything that Jesus himself has not already said. He's saying what Jesus said about the scriptures to Timothy. And so let's look at this passage together tonight. And there are three things that I want you to see that Paul does. He tells you what the Bible is. He tells you what the Bible is for and he tells you what the Bible does. And here's his exhortation, Timothy and faithful shepherds live by the book because it comes right out of God's mouth because it is the most practical book in this world and because it tells you how to live with God. So let's see what Paul says the book is, what it's for, and what it does. First, in this triple assertion, Paul speaks about the nature, qualities, and usefulness of Holy Scripture. Let's first look at what he says about the nature of Scripture. He says here that the Bible... Is God breathed and in three words articulates the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration. Three words, friends. Pasa grafe theopnustas. All scripture God breathed. There it is plenary verbal inspiration in three words. That itself is an argument for the inspiration of Scripture. Let's look at each of these words. First, all scripture or every scripture. It doesn't actually matter which way you take it. If you take it as all and there's reason to take it as all, then it refers to the Bible as a whole. And graphe occurs that way in the New Testament, referring to the scriptures as the whole. So if you take it as all, it refers to the totality of scripture. If you take it as Every, then it refers to the totality of Scripture in its discrete parts. But either way, what Paul says here when he says all Scripture is God-breathed is he makes it clear that no theory of partial or selective inspiration can measure up to what he is asserting about the Word of God here. There have always been people who have said, oh, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, or I, I don't believe Adam and Eve were specially created by God, or I don't believe there was a talking snake. That's an etiological myth. I can learn scriptural truth from these things. But I don't believe these particular things. There are all sorts of arguments against the Bible today that argue things like this. Well, the Bible borrows from pagan cosmologies. And those cosmologies are wrong. And the Bible incorporates those cosmologies into it. Or the Bible makes historical mistakes about geography and surrounding cultures. Or the Bible shows evidence of different and competing theologies. Well, here's the Apostle Paul saying, no, no, let me explain something. All Scripture is God-breathed. The genealogies in Genesis and Chronicles are God-breathed. Those mind numbingly What's the right word? <laughs> detailed laws in Leviticus are God breathed. <clears throat> Those depressing stories in Judges are God breathed. All scripture is God breathed, not just John three sixteen. All Scripture is God-breathed. So plenary inspiration. All inspiration. Not selective, not partial, but plenary. Second, verbal. Notice, what is inspired? This isn't even talking about the act of the Holy Spirit carrying along the writers of Scripture. It's talking about the product. What's God-breathed? Scripture is. It's objectively inspired. In other words, Paul is not saying that the Bible is inspired because it inspires you. That's a subjective theory of inspiration. He's saying that the Bible is objectively inspired. The words themselves are the product of inspiration and are inspired. When I was a student at the University of Edinburgh... The uh, Student Theological Society held a debate between Nigel Cameron, who was then at Rutherford House and a believer in biblical inerrancy, and Graham Auld, who was a professor of Old Testament and who was not a believer in biblical inerrancy. And during that debate, the moderator asked them both to give their definition of inspiration, and in his definition, Graham Auld said, well, I believe the Bible is inspired in that it inspires me. And Nigel Cameron blurted out in the midst of the debate, Oh, you're a Coleridgean. uh, Pardon me, what? You're a Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He articulated that discredited view of inspiration in the 19th century. Everyone's known it's wrong since then. That's a subjective view of inspiration. The Bible is inspired because it inspires me. That's not what Paul says. What he says is God breathes, is grafe, is scripture. Just like he says in 2 Corinthians 3, when he speaks of the reading of the old covenant, that's something you can read. That's, maybe he's talking about the Torah there. When, when Moses read the old covenant, their eyes were veiled something you can read this the, the the writings are inspired so it's not the ideas this isn't a dynamic view of inspiration where the ideas are inspired it's a verbal view of inspiration the words are inspired and it is god breathed all scripture is god breathed he is its author and source. Behind this, I think, are the words of Jesus quoting Moses. Do you remember in Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus is in the wilderness and the Satan tempts him, Jesus replying with the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 8, saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and in one word, the apneustos, Paul has said that. That's what scripture, every scripture is breathed out of the mouth of God. Paul's just saying here what he learned from Jesus. Paul's not giving you a new theory of inspiration, he's articulating Jesus' view of the Bible. All scripture God breathed. It comes out of the mouth of God. Just as in the creation, God spoke the world into being. So by his word, he spoke redemption and his redeemed people, his church, into being. By his word, he creates and redeems. It's God breathed. Why does Paul tell Timothy this? Because he's about to tell Timothy to base his life on this word and base his ministry on this word, and he better believe what this word is. Brothers, when you stand up to preach the word of God every Lord's Day, you are speaking a word above all earthly powers. And if you preach it faithfully, if you expound it in accordance with its own meaning and significance, you have become the mouthpiece of the living God to facilitate an engagement between the God of this universe and his people whereby the word of God preaches a message through you about God, grace, and godliness to his people. And Paul's telling Timothy this because he wants him to have confidence in the word of God because sometimes to us it seems so weak. It's certainly weak in the eyes of the world. What are you going to do? The country is going crazy. The culture is spiraling down. The world is off its rocker. What are you going to do, preacher? I don't know. Get up on Sunday morning and preach from John. Yes. Because it's the word of God. And it's living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's the very word from the mouth of God. So that's what the word of God is. And let me just say, Paul here in articulating plenary verbal inspiration has just given you the reason why we believe in inerrancy. Understand this, we believe that the Bible is inerrant because we believe that the Bible is inspired, not the other way around. We believe that the Bible is inerrant because we believe that the Bible is inspired. We don't believe that the Bible is inspired because it is inerrant. In other words, if you understand what the Bible is... Its quality of perfection, and that's what we mean to affirm by inerrancy, we mean to affirm its total truthfulness, is entailed in what it is. If it is from the mouth of God who cannot lie, it will not lie. It will be totally true because we believe it is inspired. Because we believe it is God-breathed, we believe that it is Inerrant. Now, in this regard, I want to say two things. And, and if, if, if these don't make sense, just shove them to the side and move on to the next point. But as you look at the doctrine of Scripture, it is vital that you pay attention to what the Bible says about revelation and what the Bible says about inspiration. And that you pay attention to the claims of the Bible. Because I have seen... Many, many evangelical scholars start out having a high view of Scripture, and then they study the so-called phenomena of Scripture, and they lose their confidence in the Word of God. When they do that, you can bet that they have done this. They have tried to construct a doctrine of Scripture from their own provisional answers to the phenomena of Scripture, and they have not adequately taken into consideration what the Bible says about revelation, what it says about inspiration, and what it claims about itself. You cannot learn what the bible is you cannot form a doctrine of scripture without paying attention to revelation inspiration and to the claims of scripture so as you as you wrestle as you wrestle with the doctrine of scripture move from its claims And what it teaches about inspiration and revelation to your doctrine of Scripture. And then you can deal with the phenomena of Scripture. But do not move from the phenomena of Scripture and then try and read its claims and what it teaches about revelation and inspiration in light of your provisional answer to its phenomena. Or you will become a liberal. Second point. What the Bible is for. Paul, here in 2 Timothy 3, end of verse 16, tells you what the Bible is for. And he tells you that it is profitable. It is useful. It is beneficial. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in. Righteousness. In other words, Paul makes a huge claim about the Bible. He does not merely say that it is relevant. He says that it is profitable. And those are two very different claims. Relevant doesn't claim too much for the Bible. It doesn't claim enough. If you come up to me tonight after the meeting and say, you know, gasoline is relevant to the running of my automobile's engine. I am not going to think that you are brilliant. duh of course gasoline is relevant to the running of your car's engine the problem is that claim doesn't say too much it doesn't say enough it's not just relevant it's essential now the bible is not just relevant and your task as a minister is not to make it relevant A. because it already is and B. because it is more than that (laughs) the bible that you pick up to preach from on Sunday morning, is already more than relevant. It is profitable. And it is profitable, Paul says, for four things. It is profitable for teaching, for imparting the truth of God's Word. Second, it is profitable for reproof, that is, warning based on God's Word against errors of belief and behavior. Third, it is profitable for correction. That is redirection. This is the positive side of warning. You don't just want to say to the erring brother, that's wrong. Don't do that. You want him to believe what's true and you want him to live the way that God calls him to live. You want to win the brother back. And so correction is that redirection that goes on when you're challenging unbelief or faulty behavior. And it is profitable for training in righteousness, for discipling and preparing the believer in godliness. Remember how Paul describes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 5, the goal of his ministry? The goal of our instruction is love. Love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, in that context, he has criticized false teachers. And what does he say that their teaching leads to? Endless speculation. But what does true teaching lead to? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is why you teach and the Bible is profitable for that. Because you want to see believers who live out the truth of the word in love. And the word is profitable to do that. So the Bible is the most profitable, the most useful, the most beneficial book in the world. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 keeps singing about why he loves it so much. How I love your law, O Lord. It teaches me how to live shows me who you are it sends me on the way of life I love your word and Paul's saying that to Timothy the Bible is inspired it's God breathed the Bible is profitable it's useful and beneficial and then finally what does the Bible do the Bible Look, look at the end of verse 15 and then look at verse 17 The Bible shows us the way of life and godliness. It equips and prepares us for the Christian life. Look at the end of verse 15. What are the sacred writings able to do? Make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Justification. Now... Look at verse 17. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Sanctification. My friends, between your conversion and when God takes you home to glory or when Jesus comes, whichever comes first, you are going to live in justification and sanctification. And do you know what the Bible is in the business of doing? Justification and sanctification. That's what... It does. It sets out the way of salvation. So that we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in Jesus. So that we, we put our faith in Christ as he is offered in the gospel and not in our own works. But though we are not saved by our works... Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, we are saved to good works. So even as the Bible shows us the way of salvation apart from the works of the law, by trust in Jesus, it also shows you the way of the Christian life, which is unto good works. Listen to Paul again, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul is making it clear that the Bible is totally sufficient for the Christian life. It is totally sufficient for the Christian life. It is able to equip us for faith and life, for godliness, for every good work. And Paul makes it clear that our job as ministers is not over until men and women have been conformed to Christ. That is the goal of scriptural learning and doctrine. We must not rest on people professing Christ or beginning to study their Bibles, or even embracing right doctrine. We must not rest until we see right doctrine by God's grace through the Spirit's power working out in holy living and a life of love. And as Paul says that in verse 17, who is he mimicking? Jesus in the Great Commission. When Jesus says to the disciples, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to every nation and make disciples. And here's how you're going to make them. Baptizing and teaching. Teaching what? Teaching a really simple gospel outline. Nope. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. But that's not what he says. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Paul knows that our job as ministers isn't done until the Bible is lived, not simply believed. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And it's right there, my friends, that I think in this room, that's where our great challenge is with regard to the doctrine of Scripture. You know that it is true that you won't obey what you don't believe. But did you know that it is also true that you won't believe what you don't obey? I was at southern baptist theological seminary this last week with al and with mark and mark preached a powerful message in which he said this ungodliness leads to heresy now everyone in this room would agree that heresy leads to ungodliness we've seen it happen and we see it in scripture but we often don't remember that it also works the other way ungodliness leads to heresy. It's not just that heresy leads to ungodliness, but ungodliness leads to heresy. And my friends, it works that way in the doctrine of Scripture too. Look at many of the people, some of whom have been referenced already in talks today. Look at many people in the evangelical world who are changing their view on Scripture in order to accommodate their immorality or the immorality that they want to permit in others, ungodliness has led to heresy. Ungodliness has led to a low view of Scripture. And brothers, that's where the temptation can come for us personally. You may think, I'll never stop believing in the inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. But let your heart start loving something or someone more than the God of Scripture. Start loving something more than the promises of the Word. And you're one step away from denying the Scripture and walking away from the faith. Oh, brothers, let us not simply hold to the word in word. Let's hold to the word in what we love and how we live. And so stand against the wiles of the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word tonight we ask that you would make it profitable to our souls that you would guard us by your grace that you would keep us from falling and you would present us faultless before yourself in exceeding joy we ask this through jesus christ our lord amen